Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Caitlin Tan. This week, we'll venture out into a cold, crisp forest on a winter hike. Why brave the cold? Well, for one thing, to hear winter residents making music. You know, our chickadees and titmice and cardinals and blue jays, they're all very active right now. And Italian immigrants brought their tradition of winemaking to the mountains of North Carolina. But grapes don't grow the same way here, so they had to find a way to adapt. It's a fellowship and friendship thing to share your wine with people. And we'll hear about one town's twist on the classic West Virginia slaw dog. After a years-long drought of yellow slaw, the people of Marmette flocked to chumps. We thought I would do 40, 50 hot dogs a day, but it, it never happened that way. It's always 150 plus a day. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Caitlin Tan. You know, I'll let you in on a little secret. I really love snow, especially the first snow of the year. And I'm willing to bet I'm not the only one. A few years ago, Reed Frazier, a reporter with the Allegheny Front, wrote a story about his children's love of snow and what it taught him about embracing the simple joys of the new year. The first snow of the year brings a special sound out of my two daughters. It's a little like what I hear when they get something unexpected, a surprise scoop of ice cream or a new bike. But snow on the ground after a year without it induces a different sort of sound. You hear breath filling their lungs and a long pause while it stays there. I heard that sound recently when they opened the blinds and beheld the season's first real deposit of snow. The ground, which had sat gray and brown and mealy green for months, was caked with a short, neat frosting. We bundled the girls up and sent them out the front door. I watched through the window as they played in our front yard. There wasn't enough snow on the ground to do much with. They couldn't build a snowman, and their little hands were no good at packing snowballs. But they found another use for the white stuff. I watched them scoop snow into their mittens and lick the clumps of white in their palms. When they came back inside, Ruby, my three-and-a-half-year-old, said triumphantly, I aided snow. It sounds really hokey, I know, but I have to admit this. Snow and I, we have always had a special kind of relationship. It's kind of like what some children feel toward a special stuffed animal or toy. I don't just like it because it's fun, although I am a fan of skiing, sledding, snowshoeing, virtually any snow-based recreation. No, what sells me on snow is that it brings a kind of serenity to the world. It is the embodiment of a fresh start giving a clean glaze to even the harshest of landscapes. If I ever feel lonely or sad, nothing can be as comforting as standing outside during a nighttime snowfall, taking refuge in its stony silence. And so it gave me pleasure that morning to watch my children reveling in it in our front yard, eating up snow as if it were cotton candy falling from the sky. I'd done a lot of snow eating when I was a kid. I loved how it quickly melted in your mouth, its feathery texture reduced to dense clumps of ice, and then water, in a matter of seconds. Back in our yard, my daughters were asking to walk the dog with me. They spent most of the walk dining on freshly fallen snow in our neighbor's front yards. Anya, my six-year-old, wanted me to eat some of hers, but I'm an adult now, and grown-ups don't eat snow. I tried not to think about what was in the snow. I didn't want to take away from their joy, so I let them eat it anyway, with the caveat that they avoid snow that was yellow or brown or gray. 
and they seem to understand that. What good is life, after all, if you can't taste snow? Rounding the block, Anya turned to me, offering me a mitten full of snow. There was so little in her palm it could have blown away, but there was no wind. Eat some snow, Daddy, she said. I leaned over, and I ate the snow out of her mitten. The snow tasted exactly the way it had when I was a child. It was light and airy and gone too soon. That was the Allegheny Front's Reed Frazier in an essay he wrote a few years ago. You know, there's something so magical hearing Reed describe his children's reaction to the snow. After everything we've been through this past year, I feel like getting outside can be a way to reduce stress. And I know it can feel hard and like we don't have the time, but taking a break from social media and frankly the news and just getting bundled up and venturing outside, even just for five minutes, can help. Last winter, producer Andy Cubis headed out for a winter hike with Gabby Hughes, an environmental educator at Beechwood Farms Nature Reserve north of Pittsburgh. Their aim? To find out what there is to see and hear in the coldest months of the year. So the birds have been growing a little crazy today. They're very vocal. Looks like we might have the hawk across the way. I just saw some wing flaps and it landed in the tree. So we have a pair of red-shouldered hawks that nest here. Is it easier to see certain types of birds in the, in the winter? Well, I always say winter is a great time to be a beginning birder because you don't have any leaves that you have to look through. And you have fewer species because, you know, we have a lot of migratory species that are down in the tropics this time of year. But it's a great place to start because we get to give attention to a lot of our resident species. You know, our chickadees and titmice and cardinals and blue jays, they're all very active right now. Uh, and it's a really nice time to notice their behaviors and get to know their habits and their, their vocalizations. And then when all those migrants return, you'll feel like you at least have the, the residents in your back pocket. So you know, you know those. <laughs> so right over there, we actually have a praying mantis egg case. This little foamy looking thing over here. What do praying mantises do in the winter? So the adults are no longer with us in the winter. Uh, the female, one of the last things she'll do is lay this egg sack. I think it's called an uathika. But um, this is one of the Chinese mantids, I believe. You can kind of tell by the shape of it. It's got that real kind of boxy rectangular shape. But uh, they'll hatch out of there in the spring. And you'll have maybe 50 to 100 of these teeny tiny little mantises. Wow, this is a great example of something that I would just walk right by and have no idea that something so cool was right there. They're really well camouflaged. When you look at a lot of things, they're resting. They're alive. Their roots are, you know, fine under the ground. They're sort of taking a break. But then you look at some of these, like this this log covered with all of these different mosses. I mean, it's brilliant and vibrant. Winter tends to make us think about death and rest a little bit more, but I see it as very much alive. Now, one of the things you can already see, you can see all these different herbaceous plant species, but you may notice one color in particular out in the, the meadow here. 
Yeah, kind of like a beige, a lot of beige. Yellow, tan kind of color. It looks kind of like a Dr. Seuss landscape out there. It's all like these soft humps. And unfortunately, it's stilt grass, which is an invasive species. And it's really starting to take over. And winter is a time when you can really see how much it has taken over. Can you tell me a little bit more about this invasive grass, where it's from and um, what it's doing to... The environment around here? It just seems within the past 10 or 15 years, it's really, really, really started to make an appearance. But it's been here for decades, and it was originally introduced as a packing material. So you can imagine, you know, you get this packing material and toss it out, and the, the seeds come with it, and uh, it's a problem all over western Pennsylvania. I think in winter, I always feel like it's a quieter, more introspective walk that you take. You have to look for smaller things or more subtle things. It can really calm you down, and it's just a wonderful reminder of everything that's alive. When we think of the dreariest season of the year for most people, if you go outside, you'll just realize all of the life that is happening. You've given me a new appreciation for winter hiking, so thank you. Yay! (laughs) My pleasure. That was Gabby Hughes, an environmental educator at Beechwood Farms Nature Reserve, which is run by the Audubon Society of Western Pennsylvania. She was talking with Andy Cubis of the Allegheny Front. Some of Appalachia's most rugged and beautiful places to explore are right along the Allegheny Mountains. And straddling Virginia and West Virginia, this stretch of mountains is the site of a major natural gas pipeline project. The 300-mile Mountain Valley Pipeline, or MVP, was announced in 2014 and approved by the federal government in 2017. But it's still incomplete. This is partly because of activists. The yellow finch tree sits have blocked the pipeline in Virginia for more than two years. But in November, a judge ordered the protesters out. But the tree sitters are still there. My co-host Mason Adams has been reporting on this issue for the last six years. He recently visited Yellowfinch and brings us this update. The Yellowfinch tree sitters live on platforms in white pine and chestnut oak, up on the side of a mountain hollow. To get to them, I drive half a mile down a dirt road, then walk across a creek and up a steep hill. Last time I was here, about a dozen activists called this place home. But today, it looks abandoned. The pallets they used as a barricade by the stream lie in piles, and the bunkhouse has been torn down. But there's still someone here, 40 feet up in the trees. Hey, good morning. morning. Hey, my name is Mason Adams. Uh, I'm a journalist from up in Floyd County. The tree sitter who's lived here since November is called Acre. Besides occupying this tree sit, they write posts at Appalachians Against Pipelines the anti-MVP campaign's Facebook page. Like other protesters I've interviewed at Yellow Finch, Aker uses non-binary gender pronouns and a pseudonym. But where other protesters have talked about remaining anonymous to avoid being targeted by police and MVP security, Aker talked about its value as a tactic. I think using a pseudonym uh, lets you do kind of cool stuff that you wouldn't be able to do with the same amount of integrity with a real name. Like, uh, you know, I don't have to write everything. I don't even always have to be the same person. There can be other people signing things Acre. If people can just walk up here like this, you know, uh, you could be Acre for all we know. 
Aker's <laughs> presence in the trees feels like a last stand against the Mountain Valley Pipeline. And it may signal the end of the Yellowfinch encampment. But really, this is just one of the fronts in a long-running, multi-pronged campaign. Treesets first went up against MVP nearly three years ago on the Virginia-West Virginia state line. Others followed, but they were all forced down after a few months. Then, that fall, Yellowfinch quietly went up at a more defensible site, in a steep hollow outside Elliston, near the south fork of the Roanoke River, it became a destination for pipeline fighters across the East Coast and the Midwest, from all kinds of backgrounds, too. I've interviewed people at Yellowfinch involved in Black Lives Matter, criminal justice reform, mutual aid, and fights against tar sands mining, fracking, and other pipelines. Acre lives 40 feet off the ground, on a series of platforms connected by rope lines and covered with tarps. They've got a pile of sleeping bags to keep them warm but says the weather's been fairly mild so far this winter. And it turns out that the weather many of us see as annoyance is crucial for Aker's ability to stay in the trees. The water I drink is all rainwater, so I'm really grateful when it rains. Um, and then my solar panel charges my phone. So when it rains, uh, I have to take my face away from a phone and read a book, and I get more water from my water catchment system. So in some ways, my, uh, my, my setup is reliant on the elements and sort of keeps me in tune with, with, the, uh, with the daylight and with the weather. And I feel sort of in sync with those things in weird ways. The creek that runs through this hollow is important to understanding why activists oppose the pipeline and what environmental groups are doing about it. The pipeline runs through mountains and across waterways, like this one, that are near the top of the watershed. On one side of the creek, the land has been cleared down to mineral soil. And it looks like pipeline workers are using a giant sheet of plastic or some other material to stabilize the ground. On the other side, the slope is still forested. This is where the tree sits are. But it's not just on-the-ground activists like Acre who are holding the line. Environmental groups are fighting the pipeline in court and an army of trained volunteers monitor the pipeline for erosion and other environmental violations. These efforts have delayed MVP. It was supposed to be in service by 2018, but it's still stuck behind some regulatory and legal obstacles. And its cost has gone up from $3.3 billion when it was announced to nearly $6 billion now. But MVP is making progress. In mid-January, it got an important approval from the U.S. Forest Service. And in November, a judge finally ordered the activists at Yellowfinch to come out. They took down the support camp, but left the tree sits. So Acre is still here. So what's, what's been the um, police and MVP activity like? Do you see them daily, weekly? At first they were coming out, like when, when injunction first happened, they were coming out pretty frequently. And uh, police would stand up here and use binoculars and sort of scratch their heads and measure things, but they seemed baffled. They didn't really seem to have an extraction plan. More than 50 people have been arrested and charged in the pipeline protests. Many, but not all in connection with Yellowfinch. Some during encounters with pipeline workers, several during a 2019 raid by law enforcement, and many more from intentionally locking themselves down to equipment. 
In November, the judge ordered a $500 fine for each day the tree setters remained past the deadline. But Acres seems committed to holding their space. Well, I know there's been a couple nights lately that have been like freaking cold. What keeps you on that on that platform? There's there's all kinds of like uh, local youth organizers that would come out to the space and you know they said uh, they they like clean up around the stream and read speeches and make banners. Um, there's been all kinds of local folks that have written letters to us and stood under the trees and read them and. Uh, it's whenever I see people uh, uh, really taking action and showing solidarity that really brings me a lot of joy. The Elephant Support Camp is gone, but the tree sitters like Acre have no plans to leave. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Mason Adams in Elliston, Virginia. We reached out to the Mountain Valley Pipeline's parent company, EQT, for comment. We didn't receive a response by airtime. After the break, one of our reporters has been on the case of the infamous Marmette Slaw Dog in West Virginia. We hear about a revival of one small town's 90-year-old recipe. You're Inside Appalachia. I'm Caitlin Tan. We'll be right back. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. Here in Appalachia, our landscape is notoriously mountainous, which is on the one hand wonderful, but it also presents a challenge. Companies and government officials are promising to use more renewable energy as a way to address climate change. And one way to do that is to build solar farms. But solar farms need flat land, something that's in pretty short supply here. Developers have found some flat land in portions of Appalachia, including in Pennsylvania. State Impact Pennsylvania's Rachel McDevitt reports the growing industry could take some communities by surprise. And they might even push back. Okay, you walk out here, that whole field's going to be solar panels. You walk over here, this is all solar panels. Dwight Amos bought his half-acre property in Mountjoy Township near Gettysburg about 10 years ago when he was looking to downsize. You won't go anywhere on my property and not be affected. The proposed Brookview Solar Project from Florida-based NextEra Energy would surround his house, he says, like a prison. I am upset. I mean, I'm 61 years old, and I've, I've been through life and worked hard, and I'm ready to, you know, get ready to retire. And this is uprooting everything. Amos is part of a group of neighbors fighting the 75-megawatt project that would spread through 26 different parcels and 1,000 acres. Panels would cover about half that area. 
It's been in the works for a few years, but it came as a shock last December to neighbors who weren't approached for leases. All this nightmare hit. We came back from Florida last year. We had a note on our garage door. That's how we found out initially that this was even going on. We had no clue. Todd McCoslin says he spent at least 1,000 hours this year researching and organizing against the project. He spent two hours telling me his reasons it should be denied. It's going to forever cripple the ability for the township to grow. It's, he won't tell us what kind of panels they're going to use. You know, hundreds of deer and all this other wildlife. What if this never gets decommissioned? What if it becomes a solar wasteland? Local government issues, property values, ecological concerns, the list goes on. Clayton Wood did not see this opposition coming. His family was among the first to lease land to the project, more than 150 acres. But I think people are just assuming the worst at this point. Wood is the fourth generation to own his family's farm in Adams County. Though he now lives in New York State, where he manages a dairy, he thinks of Mountjoy as home. His parents still live on the land, and he wants to be able to pass it on to the fifth generation. Over the years, the family has been approached by other developers. One wanted to put in a water park. I don't want to have to sell it. I don't want to have to pursue development opportunities beyond what we think um, is purposeful and relevant. For a long time, agriculture was the relevant use. But Wood says the economics of a small dairy farm just didn't make sense anymore. He says solar does. He can't say how much he's making from his solar lease because of the contract. But the range in Pennsylvania is between $300 and $2,000 an acre per year. Wood says on top of that financial stability, it feels good to be a small part of addressing climate change. I still feel like we're harvesting something and being stewards of our land resources, which is essentially what farming is. The fight in Mount Joy is playing out in a long series of hearings before the Township Board of Supervisors, who will decide whether to grant the project a conditional use permit. This is in contrast to how industry watchers say most projects have been developed in Pennsylvania so far. Early projects were small, and they went up without a fuss. But even a 70-megawatt project for Philadelphia, planned in Straban Township northeast of Gettysburg, won't need a public hearing. The developer is working with the township on permit conditions. And in neighboring Franklin County, the only noise you'll hear about solar is this inverter. The 75-megawatt plant is already supplying power to Penn State. Landowner Glenn Dice says it took nine years from initial lease to construction, but that's because the developer was waiting for a buyer, not because there was opposition. I cannot imagine what they could think of that would be negative, because it's, I mean, it's planet Earth, we want to preserve it for further generations, and I think this is definitely in that direction. Solar is a legal use in Pennsylvania, so municipalities have to allow it, but they can restrict things like size and where it can be built. I'll tell you, internationally, domestically, there are no standards in, the, in this segment yet. Mohamed Raleigh Badisi is a law professor at Penn State who spent years working on energy matters at the U.S. Department of Commerce. He and a team are looking at 2,000 zoning laws from Pennsylvania municipalities to see how they're handling solar. They're about halfway through, and so far, fewer than 100 mention solar. About half that number have regulations for utility-scale projects. So, so right there, I think the most important observation is this is still a largely undefined activity uh, in almost every ordinance in the state. But it's coming. Dan Brockett at Penn State Extension started getting calls from landowners approached by developers about a year ago. I thought, hmm, 
Is this crazy? Is this a scam? It was true. More than 200 solar plants planned for Pennsylvania were added to the regional electric grid's new services queue this year, and about half of those were added since September. Analysts say it's driven by two things. The price of solar panels has fallen, and developers are getting strong signals from big companies and governments that the world is moving to clean energy. Brockett is still getting calls. As we get towards the end of 2020, I'm hearing more from uh, neighbors and local government officials uh, who, who are uh, you know, upset with the prospect of this. Badisi, the law professor, says developers will lean toward areas with clear regulations to avoid potential lawsuits and save money. So for townships with a lot of open space, there is some urgency. How do they put a reg on the books that protects the community, but you know lowers the, the, the development costs? So at the end of the day, cheap power is produced, which is what everybody really wants from this. So Badisi says the whole thing reminds him of Pennsylvania's shale gas boom. It started with land agents securing leases with private landowners, and then suddenly this big new thing was happening in people's backyards. The solar boom could follow a similar arc if the state decides it's too important economically or for climate change goals to leave up to local governments. It could really blow up to be like a much larger, you know, even like local versus state debate at some point. So a lot of us are watching this wondering which direction it's going to go. We just don't know. For now, that direction is being decided mainly by rural townships, many of which haven't traditionally hosted energy projects. Each one will soon have to choose whether and how solar fits with its vision of the future. That was State Impact Pennsylvania's Rachel McDevitt reporting in Adams County, Pennsylvania. That story originally aired back in December. You know, in the colder months, there's nothing I like more than talking about favorite foods. One of our Folkways reporters, Zach Harold, called me up to talk about a West Virginia food that's important to him. Caitlin, I know you're from Wyoming, but you've been in West Virginia for how long now? For two years. Two years? That's long enough. You know about the West Virginia hot dog, right? Yeah. You've got, you know, spicy beef-based chili, a mayonnaise-based coleslaw, regular American mustard, you know, diced white onion, a, a hot dog weenie in a bun. There are some places that don't put slaw on it, but it, it's it's pretty much the same, some better, some worse. Except in this one little town right outside Charleston, about 10 miles out, called Marmette, where if you order a hot dog, they will ask whether you want white or yellow slaw. Zach, wait, wait, wait. What, why is the slaw yellow? Ah, because it's got mustard in it. I grew up not far from Marmette, and, and let me tell you, I have some fond memories of those yellow slaw hot dogs. Every week, we'd go to the grocery store, me and my mom and sister and grandma, and before we went home, we'd have to stop at this little roadside restaurant called the Dairy Post, and we would have to get my Papa Bob two hot dogs with chili, yellow slaw, an onion. And and I can just, I can smell those hot dogs in that brown paper bag as, as we're riding home on a hot summer day. It's just, it, it's as plain as day to me. I did a little bit of research in, in old newspapers, and it seems like it first cropped up at this place called Blackie's in Marmette in the 1930s. And then Blackie's became a restaurant called the Canary Cottage. And then in the 1970s, there was a restaurant that started up called the Dairy Post. That's the restaurant that my Papa Bob always had us stop at when I was a kid. 
the Dairy Post was open until the early 2000s, and then there was kind of a drought of yellow slaw in the town of Marmette until this lady, Frances Armentrout, opened her restaurant Chums about 12 years ago, and she's making the original yellow slaw recipe that started back in the 30s. So you know what I did? I called up Frances, and I asked her if I could come watch her make the famous Marmette yellow slaw. We do about a hundred pound of coleslaw in four and a half days. What what's going on in the background there, Zach? That's the sound of Francis mixing up the slaw in a big blue bucket in the restaurant sink. And then now I'll add in the sugar. And that's a twenty-five pound bag of sugar she's using. By and the way. I usually try to stir it as I'm doing that so it don't get hard, lumpy. And then she adds a gallon-sized jar of mustard, and she's not measuring anything. No, I don't. And I went on and put a few things in there before you got here. That's kind of our main ingredient. So, uh, because everybody knows it's a vinegar, mustard, and sugar base. So, right. The secrets of the yellow slaw. Zach, how did she get that original recipe? You know, I mean, that's like an 80 year old recipe now, 90 years old. Well, it's an interesting story. Frances is from West Virginia originally, but she moved to Florida where she and her husband ran a roofing business. Well, that kind of went belly up around 2008 when the economy crashed. So they came back to West Virginia and Frances knew she would have to find a job. She wasn't quite retirement age yet, but she didn't want to go and and just get a job somewhere because she had been self-employed for so long and she didn't want to punch somebody else's clock. So she started praying and uh, eventually got a, a divine answer. That was not my intention ever to start a hot dog stand. But when I kept praying, God, I need a job. Uh, our savings is down to nothing. I really prayed. And it was just like God kept saying, open a little hot dog stand. But no, if that was my intent, I would have never done it. Well, here's the thing. Frances had never run a restaurant before. She'd worked at Long John Silver's when she was in college And some years later, she used to work Saturdays at the Dairy Post. Remember the restaurant there on the side of the road that that sold the yellow slaw that I remember from childhood. She was friends with the Kinder family who ran it. So when she decided to open up that hot dog stand, she called up her old friend Lou Kinder to see if she could get her hands on the old recipes. And I said, "Um, can you give me some pointers? So that's when she and I talked, and she said, I'll even come in and show you. So she came in from out of state and showed me the recipes, and we worked, you know, everything out, um, had an agreement, and she, you know, she's a wonderful friend. And as you can imagine, Caitlin, after a years-long drought of yellow slaw, the people of Marmette flocked to Chums. We thought I would do 40, 50 hot dogs a day, and, uh, but it, it never happened that way. Never do we do 40 or 50 hot dogs a day. It's always 150 plus a day. Part of the reason for that success is the hot dogs are just really good. But it's also a point of pride for the people of Marmette. Chums is a, a source of nostalgia. It's, it's a place to hang out and to see other people from town. As a matter of fact, when I was there, I ran into the mayor, uh, Mayor Jay Snodgrass. He was there getting lunch with Councilman Bobby Thompson. I have a CMS and fry. I have my own little code, chili mustard slaw. <laughs> And uh, I'll get to do out here, uh, Bobby, whatever these guys want. Bobby, you want one or two? Two chili slaws and a water. Yeah, this is one of the hot spots, and uh, anybody that I have bring into meetings or or whatever from out of town, I try to get them down here at least once. 
and uh, they always seem to, to fall in love with it, and they, they come back. Getting to Marmette isn't necessarily accessible for everyone. If someone's listening and they remember having the the mustard slaw or they wanted to try the mustard slaw, is there any way that they could go about getting a mustard slaw dog? Well, I was I was thinking maybe this is something folks could make at home and enjoy. So so I went looking for a recipe and I found one on the West Virginia hot dog blog. Uh, the editor of the site, Stanton Means, wrote this post about how he was at a, a flea market in Marmette and he was looking through some old furniture and he came across this recipe box and inside was a yellowed index card and on it was written the recipe for Marmette yellow slaw. No, are you serious? Well, that, that's what the article said. So, so I called up Stanton to ask him about it and it turns out the whole story is completely fake. Oh, <laughs> Well, I, you know, as a, as a blogger, especially when you're a blogger about hot dogs, uh, you don't have a real strong sense of journalistic integrity, I guess. And so uh, I was approached by someone who claimed to have the famous Marmot yellow slob recipe, but he swore me to secrecy. And he said that if his name got out or if anybody knew that he'd shared it, he'd be in big trouble. So he gave me this recipe so I had to make up a cover story uh, to honor my source. And uh, so I came up with a story that I was at a flea market in Marmette and was digging through some old furniture and found a, a recipe card that had the, the recipe on it. But um, that's completely fabricated. I, I just can't believe that uh, his source, you know, I mean, there was like a fear and he doesn't want people to know who he is. It's like this sacred recipe. Well, yeah, apparently this recipe came from a restaurant that once sold yellow slaw. So when I was with Francis, I, I wanted to pull up the recipe and see if it was the real deal. <laughs> no, this has honey in it. And I don't know. And uh, no, this is different from ours. It's very different from ours. Um, and I mentioned you when you first came in, that a lot of people say, uh, how much honey do you put in or how much this and that? No, there's a couple things in here that no, we do not put in ours, that ours does not call for. Um, and I, I've even had a couple people ask for um, how long I cook it, think that I could like boil it, and I don't do that either. So that yellow slaw recipe on the West Virginia hot dog blog is somebody's yellow slaw recipe but evidently it's not the original yellow slaw recipe that you'll find at Chum's. So, I mean, you can make it at home, but, but it sounds like if you want the original, genuine article, you're going to have to make the trip to Marmette. Zaxi, you grew up eating the yellow slaw dog, which not a, lot, not a lot of other West Virginians did. So can you tell us, do you feel like this yellow slaw dog that you tried most recently does it taste the same, and, and did, it, did it take you right back to your childhood? Well, you know, I have a little confession to make. When I, when I was a kid, I was kind of a picky eater, so if I was going to get a hot dog, it was going to be just a hot dog weenie on a bun with mustard. I didn't fall in love with the West Virginia hot dog until I got a little bit older, and at that time, I was kind of a fundamentalist. I, I wanted a weenie with chili and white slaw and mustard, and onion. I just assumed that the yellow slaw would be too overpowering, too acidic, wouldn't balance out with all the other flavors. So 
in the course of reporting this story, of course I had to try the hot dogs and uh, ordered some just the way Francis told me to. Can I help you, honey? Yes, I would like uh, two hot dogs with everything, please. Okay, would that be all for you? There you go. Thank you. And let me tell you, I could not get back to my car fast enough because the smell coming out of that brown paper bag was just exactly what I remembered. And, you know, finally get back to my car and, and unwrap them and make sure I, I don't spill any of the chili or slaw on myself. And that first bite, it was, well, it was, it was kind of hard to describe. Uh, yellow slaw brings a, a sweetness and a tanginess, an acidity to the party that white slaw just doesn't. It, it, it's, it, completely changes around the balance of flavors on the hot dog in a in a really nice way. I'm just like really overjoyed because I mean this is a little like uh, uh, a faux pas but I personally don't like really mayo or mayo based slaw. However, I've always loved more of the vinegar based slaws and I love mustard. So I mean, I feel like I could be a slaw dog person now. Like this is just provided a window of opportunity for me. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. We need to go to Chums and, and I will get you a, a Marmot yellow slaw dog with everything. My treat. I, I got to head down to Marmot. <laughs> well, my baby's got a clean business. And she's that was Folkways reporter Zach Harold. To find that amended yellow slaw recipe, go to our website, wvpublic.org. Our Folkways Reporting Project is an ongoing series of stories that explore Appalachia's cultural traditions. Many of Appalachia's folkways can be traced back hundreds, even thousands of years, and often to other countries. Last September, one of our Folkways reporters found a slice of Italy in North Carolina. These are the members of the Bocce Club in Valdez, North Carolina. Bocce ball is a lawn bowling game, and it's just one bit of Italian culture that's taken root here. A few dozen Italian immigrants settled in Valdez back in the 1890s. They built communal bread baking ovens, they made a special type of sausage, and, well, they made wine. Rebecca Williams of our Folkways Reporting Corps has the story. The Italian settlers in Valdez were Waldensians. They'd been persecuted for their religious beliefs in Europe. Here in North Carolina, they made wine at home, eventually setting up a winery. This is, this is completely dry now. It's 100% Concord. The man serving the wine is Freddie Liget. He's one of the founders of the Waldensian Heritage Winery. Freddie died recently, but I met him at the winery about 10 years ago when I came to Valdez to record stories about agricultural traditions in the mountains. Well, 
My grandfather was one of the winemakers here in Valley. Whenever the Waldensians came here, they planted little vineyards, and a lot of the homes had little vineyards beside them and their own wine uh, cellars and so forth. How the Waldensians made wine changed over time. The first change happened when the Waldenses moved from Italy to North Carolina. There was different soil, a different climate, even different grapes. Freddie Liget showed me a bottle of their most traditional wine. This is what we call heritage. And heritage is 100% Concord wine, made from a Concord grape. And the reason we used the Concord is whenever the Waldensians came here, that was pretty much the only grape that was available, so the agriculture department told them to plant Concords. And it's an American grape. It is a grape that actually is for jellies and jams and, and juices and so forth. But we still use that because we wanted to do everything the same way that Grandpa made it, so to speak. Freddie Liget thinks that the way the Waldensians view wine is fundamentally different than how others look at it in the United States. We think of wine as part of a meal. A lot of people come in and say, oh, I won't drink it. But that's not the way that the Waldensians look at it. The Waldensians saw winemaking as part of their family heritage, something to pass down through the generations. Uncle Henry Peru married my grandpa's sister. Uh, he was a Waldensian, and he made wine. Eddie Zimmerman is another local winemaker. He was introduced to the tradition as a child by his great uncle. And any time you went to his house, it didn't matter how old you were, he poured you a little glass of wine. He drank out of those, those little glasses that you, that you get chipped beef in. You remember chipped beef? I do. Okay. He'd have those little things, he'd pour you a little wine out. And it was just as a, as a fellowship and friendship thing to share your wine with people. You know, it's pretty strong. So as a kid, if you didn't like it, he'd take and put, had a little bottle there with saccharin in it. You could get a drop or two of saccharin in it, stir it up to make it palatable. But you didn't, it was an insult not to drink a man's wine. Early experiences like that made a lasting impression on Eddie. After learning more about winemaking, he started helping out at the Waldensian Heritage Winery in the year 2000. They needed the labor. They needed somebody that had the passion for it. For 40 years, volunteers from the community came to help make wine. A lot of people in town came and helped them, helped them uh, mash grapes and, and make wine and stuff. And, they, of course, they, they got a share of it and got some wine from it, too, though. People told me about nights at the winery when they helped bottle the wine. They'd bring cheese and crackers and sample a little bit of the product. That was a, that was a, a party. We had bottling parties. The Wadensian Heritage Winery closed its doors in November 2019. The old dairy barn was sold back to its original owners and turned into an event space. They don't make wine there anymore. But Eddie Zimmerman does, both at home and commercially. In 2008, Eddie bought a winery a few miles down the road in neighboring Eichard, Waldensian-style wines. And there, he makes mostly fruit-based wine. Most of my wines are sweet, and uh, things like blackberry and apple and peach and raspberry and, and blueberries. That, that, that seems to be what sells at festivals, and that, that's my sales at festivals, is, is the sweeter wines. Eddie's made a few of his own changes to the wine he makes. And I started a fad back about 10 years ago. Is I've actually uh, 
took a uh, slush machine to a to a, a festival or two, and it was so popular that when you go to a wine festival, everybody has slush slush machines, and I'm the one that started it. Even though Eddie's most popular wines may not seem traditionally Waldensian, they still come from the same root. And I did a peach Bellini in that, and uh, it's. Uh, it's real popular, especially on hot days at a festival. People enjoy that. But with wine festivals canceled because of COVID-19, Eddie hasn't made any wine this year, not even for himself. Eddie's friend, Freddie Liget, was worried about the future of winemaking in Valdez when I talked with him 10 years ago. Young people just didn't seem interested. I think that's going to be one of the biggest challenges that we have. Freddie Liget died in the summer of 2020. Eddie Zimmerman was at his funeral. And I had a wine, bottle of wine put in his casket with him. I got permission from the family. We opened the casket back up and laid a bottle of wine in his arms, and he took that to the grave with him. He would have liked that. With the Waldensian Heritage Winery closed, there aren't any bottling parties in Valdez anymore. But I've met with some other folks in town who still make wine for themselves. My name is Kevin Duckworth, and I live in Connolly Springs, North Carolina, and I am a basement winemaker. Kevin gives me a tour of his basement winery via Zoom, and it is so nice. There are cafe tables and twinkle lights, china cabinets filled with special glasses, and racks and racks and racks of bottles of homemade wine. Kevin learned how to make wine about 30 years ago from his ex-father-in-law. And he had the recipe because he was a full-blooded Waldensian, and of course I was a, an outcast or a blue blood, as they call me. And uh, it was some time before he actually shared the recipe with me. He made Kevin promise to keep the recipe a secret. And after his father-in-law died, Kevin stopped making wine for years. But he recently started up again. And my daughter and her husband uh, were newlyweds, and they decided they wanted to make some wine. His daughter and son-in-law now make wine, too. Even his middle son will drop by sometimes when Kevin is making wine and give him a hand. I think he'll probably make wine forever to some degree, maybe. I'm sure they'll make their own. We have a granddaughter and a grandson, and two grandsons and a granddaughter, and hopefully they'll pass it on. I can't imagine them not. Kevin hopes that the winemaking tradition in this area, brought over from Italy, will continue. And he thinks his family will be a part of that. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Rebecca Williams in Valdez, North Carolina. To hear more of our Folkways stories, go to our website, wvpublic.org. As we kick off this new year, I'm wishing for you all hot food, a glass of cheer, and a nice walk outside. It's nice to remember that there are things to love about winter. Like waking up on a weekend morning to a fresh layer of snow, or taking that walk outside and seeing your breath in the frosty air. But most of all, I think skiing is the best part of winter. 
You know, there's just something unbeatable about sliding down on an icy hill or maybe a powder hill with skis. You just can't help but smile. So we'll hear more about skiing adventures in an upcoming winter episode. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. by Matt Jackford. The fiddle music you heard in today's show is from the archived field recordings at the Augusta Heritage Center, recorded in the 1990s by Jerry Milnes. Other music this week was provided by Dinosaur Burps, Dr. Turtle, and Jason Shaw. Roxy Todd is our producer, Eric Douglas is our associate producer, and our executive producer is Andrea Billups. Kelly Libby edited our show this week, and our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Twitter at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at WVPublic.org. Visit WVPublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to sign up for the Inside Appalachia newsletter. There, you can also subscribe or download all of our stories. Or look for the Inside Appalachia podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu.